You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. Um, we've been through the first two few. This is the first one that gets, you might say, fairly practical, specific sounding. All the other ones have been um, more or less about God, and this is significant. This prayer is, in one sense, I kind of uh, sort of struggle in what you, you could say at some level of how to how to go forward in talking about give us bread, give us this day our daily bread. Luke's version is slightly different, but it's very, very similar. Give us this day uh, today, give us the bread that is needful for us for tomorrow. Give us bread. So what does that mean? In one sense, it's very, very small. Please give us bread. But I would stress to you, this we'll see hopefully, this is also a very big prayer because, um, just to kick things off, bread in this context is essentially uh, Jesus' placeholder for the basic necessities of life. Um, You could say it's his placeholder for all aspects of physical provision. And so A.W. Pink, an old uh, theologian, uh, I guess he's not old anymore, he's dead, but he used to be old. Uh, He said this, thus, Pink says, bread covers all food. So the prayer is for, this is important, so the prayer, give us our daily bread, is for farmers and against famine, you could say. Give us our daily bread. It's prayer for farmers and against famine. Again, he says, the prayer covers clothing, shelter, and physical health. So the prayer becomes an intercession for social and medical services. Or again, he says, the prayer covers money and power to earn, and so becomes a cry against poverty, unemployment, and national policies that produce or prolong both. Catch all that? In other words, it's applying to a lot of stuff. When in the first century world, it still is the case, of course, bread was a staple of everyday life. Bread didn't last very long either, by the way. If you ever had uh, any bread, made any bread that doesn't have preservatives, it basically lasts a day. It doesn't last much more than that before it goes moldy or goes hard. And so the prayer for daily bread was a very much a recognition of that fact. We don't. <laughs> I just found a loaf of bread we, I, I think I threw on top of a in our uh, pantry downstairs that had been there since August or something, or July. And it still was uh, pretty, I think it would be edible. It was, uh, it was a little hard, but still soft. There wasn't any mold on it <laughs> for two and a half months. That doesn't happen with normal bread. Bread goes moldy. So anyways, the prayer is covering a great deal. It sounds like a little thing, but it's actually covering a great deal. My, my category would be all aspects of physical provision. You could even say all aspects of physical reality. Lord, give us this day our daily provision of all things. So, one thing that we haven't done very much as we've studied the prayer is uh, reflected upon the nature of prayer that changes us. I've barely said this at all. I don't think I have at all, actually. Is that when we pray, um, as as I've made clear in the Lord's Prayer, everything's uh, almost everything is a request, a petition. Lord, do this, do this, do this. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's right and good. But one thing that also happens in prayer is God changes you. We ask for things. We petition the Lord for things. In the process of prayer, God has a significant means. It is a significant means by which he actually transforms us as human beings. He changes us. If you truly pray, if it's more than just the run-of-the-mill thing, you meet the Lord in communing with him it's meeting the holy of holies. It's meeting the Lord himself, and he changes us. And so we want to reflect a little bit on this. One danger 
before we get there, of praying this prayer is that we get here too soon. One danger of getting to this point where we're at, get us to stay our daily bread, is that we get here way too soon. And so we want to remember the fact that the first part of the prayer was all about the Lord, right? You start off acknowledging and declaring who he is, our Father in heaven, a lot in that little sentence that you should reflect on in your prayers. We ask that his name will be hallowed. As I argued, it really is the foundation um, of all the rest of the prayer is that we want our Father's name to be made great. This is what a Christian feels progressively more. You actually have a burning, increasing desire for God's name to be seen as great. It makes everything else in your life look insignificant, unchallenging, and puny progressively throughout life because you want that. You want that. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You have a great desire, and we plead, Lord, bring your kingdom. means that you care about your roommate. For instance, you care about the city of Brookings and the campus, that salvation would come and that righteousness would increase. You want that, and so you ask for it over and over and over. And you want God's, want God's will to be done. We talked about it last week. I actually want, increasingly, Lord, I want your will to be done, not mine. And the depths of that are just incredibly profound because we deal with it every day. So I just rehearsed that because we were, we've been there for whatever it is, five weeks or something. Um, and it's really important that we remember that as we move into asking for things, practical things, you could say, like bread. So N.T. Wright says this, quote, If we don't spend time adoring our Father in heaven, seeking the honor of his name, and praying for his kingdom, all our own desires and hopes will simply present themselves to us in a muddled and jumbled fashion, coming bubbling up to the surface in what C.S. Lewis called a steam of consciousness. End quote. So he just argues if we don't spend time in adoring and honoring and praising the Lord, actually aligning our heads and hearts to want that, everything is just going to be this, this mess. It's just going to be a hot, bubbling cauldron of disordered wants and activity because that's what our lives typically, at least very often, are. It's just going to bubble up. Prayer just becomes the steam out of whatever is going on in your life, whatever is most uh, urgent, the froth that spills out of the mug of our, the mess of our lives, you could say. And I imagine for many of you guys, that's an experience. It's a regular experience. Your prayer is just kind of blah, this and that and that and that. And we have a lot of wants, and a lot of them are messed up. And so without the prayer in the context, this is really vital. Without this prayer in the context, so to speak, uh, literally in the verses, and also in our heads and our hearts, the context of the glory of the Lord, um, it becomes like tea that hasn't been steeped long enough. It just doesn't taste good. It's not quite right. We're meant to have our asking for our daily provision steeped rightly in the glory of the Lord. And so when N.T. Wright says, you know, he, he says the negative, if we don't do that, it's just going to be this bubbling up of whatever. The positive side is that when you're wanting that, you're asking for bread for the right reasons. You have the glory of the Lord and his kingdom purposes for the right reasons. And we'll get to there in a second. In other words, it's God-centered. <clears throat> That's what we want. You want your life to be really, really God-centered. All the motives, all the reasons, all your actions, you want to be centered on the Lord. That's what we want in all things, and it's the best thing. And so, in other words, when Jesus says elsewhere in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God, he doesn't say, period. That's it. That's all you're supposed to do. And don't worry about life or food or clothing or provision of any kind. 
He says, seek first the kingdom of God, first seek God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you, which in the context is uh, shelter, food, and clothing. That's the order that he has for us. And Paul has this theme throughout the scriptures. It's better to die and be with Christ than to remain here on the earth, he says. That's his desire. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. He, that's not talking about provision, something about suffering. I consider them not even worth comparing. When you put them on the scales, Paul's suffering was great. You put them on the scales, it doesn't even compare. It just goes, boom, compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. He says elsewhere in Philippians, I consider all things as loss. Very, very well-known verse. I consider all things as loss. And Paul was talking about a lots of positive uh, things, in a sense, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. This is the steeping that our minds are supposed to be in as we ask for things. Paul thinks of all these things, and we're going to come back to this very briefly at the end. Paul thinks of all the things of the daily life not even worth comparing to how glorious Jesus is. So seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things they're about to ask for will be given to you. So, uh, asking for bread teaches us things. We get there, and this is a prayer, honestly. This is a request you can just make any moment you do this. We ask, Lord, may your kingdom come. You ask God to grant your heart to be centered on him, and then you start asking. And as we assess these things, we consider the fact that God changes and transforms us. So I have six very brief things that I think it teaches us. <clears throat> Ways that God transforms us as we reflect upon the truths and we ask, may your, or excuse me, uh, give us this day our daily bread. One is that we are only stewards as human beings. We're only stewards of that which God gives us. R.C. Sproul says this, we are only stewards. God grants us both possession and use of his creation, but retains to himself the title. God must bestow it, give it to us, because everything belongs to him. Philippians 24, or uh, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness and its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. It belongs to God. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Psalm 104, that you give them, that you give them, they gather. You open your hand and they are filled with good. And so we have to recognize this. Give us this day our daily bread. We ought to hold in our minds this truth because it forms pathways. If you continually do this, if you teach yourself this and ask God to teach you this, paths are formed that help us think this way. We're just stewards of the things that he gives us. They're not actually ours. We use our bread or our car or our uh, home or whatever in very qualified kind of way. At the end of the day, we aren't actually owners of anything. We are only stewards or managers. So that's one. We're only stewards. Two, uh, thinking on this, praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread reminds us of our frailty. We're very frail people. And we have very little familiarity, I would argue, with much of this. Frailty, for instance, uh, in our day-to-day -day experience. In our world, um, in our modern Western world, we have fridges and freezers and we store up food for a long time to come. And so the grocery store is always open. McDonald's is always open. We have a difficult time connecting to the fact that we daily need bread. But of course, we know what we do. 
with you don't eat within 24 hours, you become weak and frail, right? Not even that much. And you, you fast, especially if you don't drink any water, for any longer than that, you're going to become dangerously weak and dangerously frail. Behind every blustering, boastful man lies a frail frame, utterly needy of the provision of strength virtually every hour. Reflect upon that truth. Every blustering, boastful man or woman, behind every single one of them, is the daily need for food, the daily need for provision, a very, very frail, fragile frame. So that's interesting. And frailty is actually central in God's design. This isn't an accident. In fact, it's not even a result of the fall, the fact that we're needy, independent, and frail. We were built as needy creatures. Prior to the fall, eating was necessary. We were dependent and finite creatures prior to the fall. We were dependent for wisdom, dependent for provision in every way. And so frailty actually isn't a result of the fall. And mostly because it says something about the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, When I am weak, what? Then I am strong. The strange, paradoxical-sounding thing that Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That doesn't make any sense. It does make sense if the point of your strength says something about who provides it, which is Jesus. And so anytime we act as if we're not weak, at the end of the day, anytime we act and live in a way that we're self-dependent, it's not giving glory to anyone but ourselves. And it's lying, too. And so when we give praise to God, when we recognize our frailty, and we give thanks, in fact, for it because he gets glorified, the trophies go up on Jesus' mantle. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm recognizing I need daily bread. I'm recognizing I'm frail. He provides. Our academic kudos go forwarded to Jesus. Get forwarded. Because you're dependent in every way. So that's two. Three, the brevity of our existence. It reminds us, teaches us that our existence is very, very brief. In fact, if you don't eat food for very much time, at for more than just a few days, if you're a friend, you die, right? Psalm 90, 12, 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the numbering our days mentality, the thinking about the fact that our days are numbered in the movies and in pop culture or whatever is a threat. Anytime someone says that your days are numbered, right? It's a threat. It's a bad thing. In reality, actually, the scriptures talk about that as a wise life-giving truth to believe. Your days are numbered. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder. My days are numbered. It might be up, in fact, tomorrow. And you have to, we have to preach ourselves to this. And this is a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It's reminding us daily that our existence is very, very brief because do you want wisdom? That's one answer. Or that's one question. Do you actually want wisdom? If you want to be wise, Christian, you have to remember my days are numbered. If you reflect on it every day, it doesn't just work. I know anybody in this room that's had someone, friend or some acquaintance or family member that's died for a short time afterwards, maybe even months, let's argue. At least this is how it's worked for me. It brings to my mind my mortality. It brings to my mind how short life is. High school friend of mine died in high school or my, my after one semester of my freshman year in college. And, you know, lots of tears, lots of emotion, lots of reflection upon that truth. But it faded away. It didn't last. I thought it would last, honestly. Like, man, I could just die at any moment. Anything could happen. It doesn't work that way. 
things happen that bring that back up and perhaps are helpful, God can use it. But every day, ask for daily bread. It's reminding us that we are very, very brief creatures. Man, any one of you could die tonight. Any one of us could actually uh, perish tonight and go and face the Lord of hosts. Does that not, that ought to move us. That ought to be an incredibly motivating thing. Psalmist knows this. Teach us the number of days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I actually want to live a wise life. It's very, very brief. Four, increases our joy. It reminds us and gives us joy. Why does it do that? Why does it give us joy to pray and ask for daily bread? Mostly because giving thanks to the Lord is good. Psalm 92 says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And it doesn't just mean it's the right thing to do. It's a good thing, some objective sense in which you checkbox. It means it's good. Giving thanks is a very good experience. Proud people don't give thanks. Not really. The more proud you are, the less you give thanks. Because you're deferring credit. That's any time you give thanks to someone. You're deferring the things that you have, the, the abilities that you have, to something or somebody else when you give thanks. Thank you for the thing that I have. And doing that is good. Doing that is a very joyful experience. It's a very lighthearted, delightful life to live, a thankful life. A proud life is a very, very dark life to live. So it gives us joy. Five, it reminds us to love others. So close your eyes for a second, or at least whatever, but feel free to close your eyes. Pray, this, pray the prayer in your head. Give us this day our daily bread. And actually apply that just for a few moments. Do more than just repeat the words, but apply it. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, question. You can stop praying. <laughs> uh, who, you feel free to show your hands, maybe this is dangerous. Who intentionally prayed Give us this day our daily bread. Who thought of others just now in that prayer? A few hands? Yeah, I, I assumed maybe I even preface it and give you a lead-in. Often when I've been praying this prayer lately, preparing for this stuff, I haven't been thinking about other people. And it's right there. Give us this day our daily bread. One thing that this prayer teaches us is to love other people. Or another way to put it, we should be equally solicitous I think that's how you say that word. On behalf of others as for ourselves. We should be equally thoughtful, equally petitioning on others' behalf as much as ours. It's not give us this day my daily bread. I kid you not, 90 out of 100 times or something, I pray that. That's probably, that's actually what I'm praying. Just, I'm thinking of myself. And in every whatever, not just this prayer specifically. So, for instance, do you pray for your enemies? Do you seek their good in your prayers to push it to the extreme? That's what Jesus says. Don't hate your enemies. You're actually supposed to love your enemies. Do you pray very, very positive? Lord, grant them provision. Grant them um, you know, bread. Grant them blessing. Lead them to yourself. How often do you pray that for the people that come to your mind that are the people that you dislike the most? Dare I say it, the people you have hatred in your heart for. Because you got them. I got them. You have hatred, you hate certain people. If you think you don't, 
Uh, you should do some praying about that and ask the Lord to give you some insight, because you do. It's the opposite of love. For not loving someone, we're hating them. How often do you pray for the good? How often do you pray for them? I thought of somebody earlier this today, actually praying for this, that literally when I pray it, I don't want to pray it. I don't want. I know in my heart and I confess it. I don't want to ask for anything good for this person. That exists in my heart. So I ask for it and I pray for forgiveness knowing he grants it for how dark that is. So it teaches us to love others. Six, at the end of the day, it teaches us that we're meant to have confidence in him, in Jesus, in God, not in secondary causes. We're meant to have confidence in him alone. So when we ask, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking God, right? Praying, God, grant me bread. The prayer isn't meant to ignore secondary causes, the means of everyday life, like the farmer, like the shipping and handling, like the entrepreneuring grocery store owner who sells you the bread. It's not to ignore those things. Those are realities. Those are things we're supposed to be thinking of. But ultimately, it's meant to draw our minds to the God who gives. That's what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to think of God in that way. We're supposed to think of him that way, and we give thanks. Ultimately, we look past the secondary causes that are real and important, and we look up and say, thank you. Give us this day our daily bread. Father. So those are things that's teaching us. There's a lot more. Those are a few, and we should be reflecting on those things. I asked a question. This is how we're going to end <clears throat> in a few minutes. Uh, there's a there's a a thing, a question that gets on my mind when I think through this prayer, and the way I put it on your sheet, I think, is is it necessary? Is this prayer necessary? And I'm going to say yes and no. And uh, the heresy alarms in perhaps a couple of your minds. Just hold on a second. Um, are we like the foolish rooster who thinks that when he crows, uh, the sun is coming up because he crows? Roosters crow, sun comes up. Are we in danger of that? That I'm asking for my daily bread, and when I ask, then because of that, I get my daily bread. I get my provision. And if I stop asking, it's going to stop happening. One way to answer this question is that there's a perception, of course, that the answer is no. That it's not necessary, the prayer. There's a perception in your hearts, and certainly in the world, the unbelieving world, that no, it's absolutely not necessary. One reason I say this is because, <clears throat> say you're 19 years old, you've been alive around 7,000 days, just about. You're about 7,000 days old, <clears throat> And if you have forgotten to pray this in any particular day, let's just be generous and say 50% of the time you don't ask uh, throughout a week. Half that week, whatever, three and a half days, you didn't, didn't ask. 50% of the time, you don't ask, give me this day, this, uh, give me this day my daily bread. It means about 3,500 times you've proven that this prayer is unnecessary, right? You could say 3,500 times, you could reflect and go, huh, I really don't pray that unless that's being generous. <laughs> I don't know what the answer actually is and how often we ask for daily bread, but the, the percentage varies, of course. But something like three to 4,000 times, you've shown this to be not necessary. You eat your bread, you work hard, you get your money, you buy your food, and a whole bunch of times, it had nothing to do with the Lord, right? And now, one reason I say that is that there is a biblical reality that we have to acknowledge, the Bible acknowledges itself, 
that Jesus says that in Matthew 5, a little bit before this, a few verses before this, the sun, God sends, rises the sun on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. And those are both positive things. Rain for crops, sun for warmth and growth. He sends them on the just and the unjust alike. The unjust aren't pleading in the Lord to give them the daily bread. And yet, he gives. The psalmists and the biblical authors really struggle with this sometimes. They actually have a hardcore time often with the justice, the seeming injustice of that situation. <laughs> you have a terribly unjust person who doesn't give a rip about the Lord and he just sends great crops. You could name, you know, a dozen people right off the top of your head who don't give a rip about Jesus and are very, very successful, very, very wealthy, very, very popular, you know, whatever you want to say. And say, what? Why, Lord? And here I am in the dumps. Here I am with terrible self-esteem issues. Just having self-esteem in the first place is a problem. But here I am with all these problems and someone who doesn't care is doing really, really well. How does that work? And so this happens all the time. The biblical reality is that God sends his providence into all the world on the just and the unjust. So acknowledging that is fine. Acknowledging the mystery of how that works is fine and good. But now in reality, my baseline answer that I would say, is this necessary, is that yes, it's definitely necessary. Let me quote something to you here. <clears throat> he says, uh, I think this is pink again, we do in fact depend every moment on our Father Creator to keep us and the rest of the universe in being and to sustain nature. So that each year sees seed time, harvest, and food in the shops. And he makes this observation, which I think is helpful. Particularly in an age like ours, where we have assumed nature to be self-sustaining, we have problems about the reality of God. In other words, we tend to interpret natural law, if you want to say as an example, as godless law. Nature is just self-existent, independent on no no one, nothing outside ourselves. We tend, as a result, when we think that way, to assume God has nothing to do with calm nights and storms. He has nothing to do with rain and droughts. This is just nature, right? It's operating according to natural law, godless law. We tend to think of people and groups and nations will be sustained without the Lord's blessing overall because the psalmist says things like that. And Jesus says things. You send the rain on the just and the unjust. But this just isn't so. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.2, he tells us, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, pray for the kings, pray for those who are in high authority so that you can actually live a peaceful and quiet life. That's a good thing to be in a culture, to be in a nation in which laws are enforced and more or less some basic righteousness is followed and implemented in the law so that you can live a kind of life that we're meant to live, peaceful and quiet, dignified in every way. And so God is actually really involved. God is actually responding to prayer and affecting worlds, cultures, nations, civilizations. This actually was a result of prayer, even though when we, on the surface of it, it often seems like, well, I didn't pray for bread, I didn't pray for any provision for the last two months, and yet I'm got a full stomach. He actually is involved. One reason he is, is that God almost always uses means. This is one way he answers prayer. It isn't always a dove descending from heaven. In fact, the meanless ways that God answers prayers is extremely rare in scripture. 
Jesus gets baptized, right? And the heavens open up and something like a dove, the Holy Spirit descends. It's this very much supernatural thing that happened. Most of the time, that's not the case. The parting of the Red Sea, anyone know how that happened? God parted the Red Sea to let the Egyptians go through in Exodus. How'd that happen? Anybody? Yeah. Right. Well, perhaps that, but certainly the high winds in the scriptures themselves specifically says a strong wind blew all night long. Wind is a very natural thing, right? It is. God sends down a fire column. Fire is a very natural thing. We don't call it yet, we don't say that wasn't a miracle. They just happened to part the Red Sea and they happened to escape just at the exact right moment. It's still a miracle. And so God uses means is the point. And often it's means of people. He alleviates poverty through people helping to alleviate poverty. He doesn't just dump gold down on people who need help. He ends the slave trade in Great Britain in the 18th century through people, through uh, spirit-led convicted people like William Wilberforce, who labored for three decades to end the slave trade. God did that. And Wilberforce attributes it straight to the Lord. It says, God has laid on me two great purposes, and one of them was the abolition of the slave trade. So we say God did it, and you ought to say God did that through means, through William Wilberforce and others. So God uses means, and God is glad to give. This will be my final point. God is a God who loves to give. He's very, very glad to give when we ask for his kingdom purposes. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these will be added to you. And so the highway of heaven, you might say, here is clearly that God, uh, that the heart that delights to do God's will, a driving desire for his kingdom to increase here on earth. That's the highway, highway of heaven. It's a heart that loves that, that wants to see God's will for our heavenly father to be hallowed, to be glorified, to be exalted as great through all things. And so if you're pleading that, you're heading straight, if you're asking that. Even if you experience all the uh, uh, divided heart things that we have, we have all sorts of other desires, you're pleading and asking, Lord, may your name be glorified. We're heading straight. But I would suggest two things in closing as the, uh, the bumpy things on the side of the highway. Anyone know what those are called? Bumpy things? Rumble strips. There's two things. There's probably many more. Uh, but here's two that I think help us know when we're getting off this highway, the glory of the Lord, as we're asking for our daily bread. One is Proverbs 38 through 9. Proverbs 38 through 9 says this, give me neither poverty nor riches. He's praying. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Don't give me poverty, Lord, please. Don't give me riches, but just give me the food that I need. And he says this, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Because who needs God when you got a full belly and a full wallet or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So Proverbs 30 clearly has a bumper that guides our prayer. When you're asking, give me my daily bread, give me my daily provision, Lord, grant me what I need to walk through life. One really important thing to know if you're getting off the rails is if you're asking for selfish, self-indulgent reasons. If you're asking for more than you actually need, do you actually just want, Lord, grant me just what I need. I don't want to be rich. I would prefer not to be poor. He says, grant me not poverty so that I steal and profane your name. Grant me just what's needful for me. That's what I want. I just want what I need. I want to live within my means so I can glorify you. And as soon as your prayers start veering off that, 
it's a big time warning sign to you. Are you praying this rightly? Are you actually having a heart that wants to delight in the Lord and see his glory? That'll be one sign to say you're, you're not. You're veering off into the ditch of self-indulgence. And in case you don't, aren't aware of a little thing called the Health, Wealth, Prosperity Gospel, I challenge you, if you've never heard of that, if you have, but go tonight, YouTube, spend 30 minutes, Google Health, Wealth, Prosperity Preachers, and you can get your fill of guys that proclaim a gospel that's not a gospel, but they proclaim something they declare as a gospel that says, if you're a Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, basically. God will provide for all your financial needs. You'll always have abundance. Because it's a sign, it's a clear sign of his blessing, and if you don't have that, you're not, you're not doing it. It's, I'll just say this, it's wicked and disgusting and evil. It's very much an anti-gospel message. And some of you may have friends that are succumbed to that gospel. Some of you may, in fact, be living according to the gospel. Many of us often are. That's just the clear sign of God's blessing is financial provision. That's a very, very dangerous thing. You have things like Job, for instance, that he's doing minding his own business. He's honoring the Lord, and God just destroys almost his entire life, except for his actual life. Just destroys everything, kills all his kids. You have things like Joseph, things like Jesus, like Paul, you know, minor characters in the history of the Bible that don't have health, wealth, and prosperity throughout their whole lives. So, Proverbs 38 through 9, the second bumper strip, uh, whatever, Malachi 3, verse 10. This is another one, Malachi 3, verse 10. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. It's talking about Israel in this context. Bring the full 10%, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now he says the only time in scripture God says to do this, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Bring in the 10%, put me to the test, God says, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing. Well, I mentioned health, wealth, prosperity because you can read this verse very, very excitedly if you love health, wealth, prosperity kind of teaching. See, if you give, God will give you even more. And he is talking about actual provision in this verse. He's, he goes on talking about he won't send famine on the lands and your crop produce will be good. It's actually what he's talking about in the context to, to Israel. So it's dangerous, but we have to hear this. There, here's the reality that, that uh, Malachi is getting after. If you are faithful, that's what he's saying. He was rebuking Israel before and after this. If you are faithful, in this context, bring in the actual 10%. Actually give. If you are faithful to the Lord, he wants to grant you a blessing for the purpose of blessing other people. God loves to give. He really does. The idea that he doesn't actually provide what you need and provide everything to enjoy is a throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of situation. The pendulum of that clock just swung way over. And you end up as a monk in the desert wearing nothing but, you know, old baggy t-shirt. I'm righteous now, and you only eat bread and water because I'm not for stuff. Well, that's a huge misunderstanding of the biblical teaching as well. So God says, put me to the test. Let's see. You be faithful. You give and you live as you ought, 
And when you're doing that, what you're wanting is the glory of the Lord. And so here's how it works. God gives gifts when we use them for his glory. He blesses so that you would be a blessing. And when your heart really is on fire there, he grants more because he wants his glory to be seen and he loves when his children are faithful. He loves when he loves others. It's the second greatest commandment. Very much similar to the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. So man, that, that bumper is so important. So when you are asking for things, for what reason are you asking? Is it just for the needfulness or do you want just more? You just want more stuff. Don't be deceived. That's a huge, huge temptation for us in our very developed world in comparison and culture is that we just want stuff. Our, the cares and desires of riches choke out the gospel. You care much more about the next computer. We care much more about the next toy. That's a huge danger. So ask for that. Ask and pray the Lord just grant you a heart, just what you need and what you could use. And then second, ask that what he would give, your daily bread, would be used for his glory. You would actually desire to be a blessing to other people. And he'll grant it. He loves to give good things to his children who ask them. So conclusion. One, be shaped through the knowledge of Christ by praying that he'd give you daily provision. Hear that. Be shaped by knowing Jesus by praying that he'd give you daily provision. That's how we're shaped, is knowledge of him. Two, don't get here too soon. Make sure to continually inform your asking by the whole prayer as you ask for your daily provision. Three, plead for provision so that you'd be a provider. And be content with what you need, not what is simply lavishly for your own, our own pleasure. Give thanks to God through Jesus who gives to us all things to be enjoyed when received with thanksgiving. Give thanks for them and ask for them in those ways. Let's pray. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit EquipCampusMinistries.org. Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that, in all things, all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.